without a goal. They scored two in 30 seconds at the end of regulation, early in OT, and they win it. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Forever Mighty podcast. Uh, as you can tell, it is just me, Stephen, today. Uh, I will be talking today um, with Chris Watkins. Uh, you might know him from Twitter as Yolo Pinato or DJ Bodega Cat. Huh. Um, unfortunately for us, Chris is a Blackhawks fan, um, <laughs> but that we won't hold against him. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing good, man. Just, uh, you know, the weather's picking up, and, you know, uh, things are starting to open back up and stuff, so, so you know, can't, cannot complain too much on my end. You're getting out of that Joe Kim Noah uh, weather? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, a little bit. The, why would anybody go to Cleveland weather? You know, we're <laughs> almost out of that stage, so, so yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, no, things, things are looking like they're on the upswing. Good. Um... So I kind of, just to kind of start, um, I kind of became aware of you, as weird as I guess that is to say, a couple <laughs> of years ago, I think you had built a model that tried to um, determine trade value. Yeah. Um, how, how did you get into hockey and analytics, specifically, if you don't yeah. mind my asking? Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, so the hockey piece was, um, you know, when I was much younger, uh, back in the 32-bit era of, of gaming, um, we uh, there used to be this thing called demo disc that used to come with the with the console that you would buy. So I bought a PlayStation One. Uh, I want to say '96 or '97, and uh, you know I begged my parents to get it. They got it, and then didn't realize the investment that it was required to actually get the game up and running. So they got me the console, but didn't give me the game because uh, they saw they were like fifty, sixty dollars each, and they're like, "No, <laughs> uh, yeah. that's a bridge too far." So basically, it was just uh, all I had was a demo disc. On there was like NHL, I want to say '97, whatever year the Panthers mm-hmm. and the Avalanche were playing in the, oh, in the wow. finals. And so that's basically just all I played off of that. Just like five minutes. That was it. You only could pick the Panthers. You know? <laughs> uh, and so yeah, you know, it was like. And so that was my first introduction to hockey. I'd seen it on Sports Center, um, you know, back when everyone watched Sports Center. Um, I'd seen it, but it was only in highlights and plays. So I didn't really understand any of the nuances of the game. Only saw goals and hits. Uh, so that's how I thought the game was played for, you know, almost a decade. Um, and then when I got a little bit older, uh, uh, moved down to Atlanta for school, um, started to watch the Thrashers, uh, and then got back into the video games. Um, and that's when I started to get into in the you know, the trades and sort of the roster construction, all of that stuff, better understanding sort of how that process worked. And so um, that just sort of led to me being more interested in sort of following uh, up on that and diving more into the analytics piece, like who would be the players that you would trade, who plays best with each other. Um, these were things that were represented in the video game world, but not necessarily so in the, you know, in the actual hockey discussion mm-hmm. sphere. Um, and so just over time that evolved into more, nuanced discussions about, you know, you know, who are the best players, what actually makes someone the best player, what is the best players, set of players to actually construct a winning hockey team and stuff. And so, you know, this coincided, obviously, with the Blackhawks doing very well. Um, <laughs> but there was, you know, there was also, you know, some sort of, you know, more behind-the-scenes stuff outside of, you know, just drafting Kane's and Kane, uh, you know, Taze and Kane, you know, uh, one and three uh, in back-to-back years. 
um, that led to them being a super successful franchise in that time period. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you sort of understand the sort of other, you know, 21 players on the ice and, and so on and so forth? And so that just sort of led to a longer, longer term fascination with the analytics piece. And, uh, you know, it's been like that ever since. Okay. Uh, if you don't mind my asking, how, about how old are you? Uh, 34. Okay. So you're only a couple years older than me. I'm 31. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you have kind of the, uh, the same for, for some extent, some of the same, uh, what do you call it? Um, kind of like big hockey moments that I do. Right. Right. Yeah. I remember, it's funny. I remember when I really got like back into the league as a whole was the, the Hawks Flyers, uh, finals. And I just remember watching those whole playoffs and they were great. And, oh, that was a blast. I'm sad to say I was definitely rooting for the Flyers. Uh, as a yeah, Ducks yeah. fan, my loyalty was to Chris Pronger. Sure, of course. Uh, but still, so. So one of the things that you, you talk about I think is really interesting as far as people's kind of hesitancy or pushback or whatever about analytics is – you made a point that I hadn't thought about as far as basketball, about how analytics basketball is just 2K ball. Right. And the thing I wonder about that is it kind of ties into something else you said that I saw, which is that McDavid is basically James Harden. (laughs) And so I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I think, you know, James Harden for me is maybe the least enjoyable (laughs) <laughs> super player I've ever seen. I right. I have I have absolutely no interest in watching James Harden play basketball, but right. he is objectively incredible. Right. Um you know, and it's it's funny I think how much the nuances or little things change it because like I'm a Chris Paul fan. Him and Chris right. Paul are both pound the rock kind of guys, but the difference is, is more often than not, Chris Paul leads to a pass where, you know, James Harden's kind of, I don't know, 50, 50, 60, 40. What, what does 2K ball look like in hockey? Is there a version of that or is it more just an analogy to appreciate analytics and the way that it gets overthought? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, the exact quote I had was... Uh, uh, Connor McDavid is James Harden with Kyrie Irving highlights. <laughs> to your exact point, uh, in terms of recognizing that Connor McDavid is objectively a a fascinating player to watch, um, and see, you know, on a on a game to game basis in a way that James Harden is not, but in the way that they both sort of affect the game, um, it, as a you know as Charles Barkley said about James Harden, you know possibly the best you know offensive player in in NBA history. And this is a guy who, you know, used to be best friends with Michael Jordan and went head-to-head with him mm-hmm. in the finals and, you know, knows his game inside and out and has said James Harden is potentially better than him on offense. Um, the difference between him and Michael Jordan, obviously, is that Michael Jordan was also an all-world defender. Right. But James Harden is objectively not. So <laughs> Controversial so, so take. It bounces, so it bounces out. So, you know, but to your question about, you know, what does 2K ball look like? So I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder because the 2K – you know, to get um, into the sort of nuances of it, you know, th- there's the meta game of 2K, um, which has been honed over the years. You know, you know how there's sort of professional 2K leagues and all that stuff right. like that, where people have been playing. You know, I've been playing 2K religiously, 
Now probably you put in thousands, tens of thousands of hours of playing 2K. I used to be like number four in the world, <laughs> like when, <laughs> when 2K9 came out, like that. Uh, so uh, there's a very established meta game, but uh, but at the essence, it was always three pointers uh, and dunks. Uh, mm-hmm. Didn't go for the two pointers one because it, it was a very hard thing to do in 2K, um, and then two like you just optimize your team and you optimize your roster to get you those things. So for me, for example. I always have a team full of shooters that can score a lot, guys that can dunk really well, and guys that uh, block shots. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't pay attention to passing. Uh, I don't pay attention to rebounding. I don't pay attention to even like perimeter defense or steals or anything like that. Like it's you be my guy off the dribble. Like I know how to play well enough to sort of make that difficult for you. But if you can get past my guy, I have five guys at the rim that are going to block your shot. And, you're not gonna <laughs> and, and so you are not scoring in that instance. Uh, and then I'm getting three, three points on the other end. So you're going for two points, and it's very hard for you to get those two points. And I'm getting three points on the other end. And by the law of averages, I'm just going to win that exchange right. like 60-70% of the time. And so it's funny now that you see that uh, the Milwaukee Bucks have been the uh, most recent manifestation of that, where they are like, we're giving you as many three-pointers as you want, but you're mm-hmm. never scoring at the rim because we have a bunch of shot blockers. Now the other end, we have a guy, Giannis, that is going to get us a dunk every single time, and then if he doesn't get a dunk, we have a whole bunch of guys that will shoot us threes. And so, you know, it, and it's like, oh, this innovative new strategy that everyone is doing. I'm like, guys, people have literally been doing this for 15, 20 <laughs> years. Like, this is nothing new. And to the point where if you go back and watch the All-Star game, for example, or the the, the rookie sophomore game, you know, people where it's all dunks and three-pointers three and no defense, that's what they say. Oh, these are video game uh, settings. Right realistic competition all that stuff like that so basically all that is is saying that these strategies have existed in some capacity uh, in the minds of people who are sort of super fans for hockey it's a little bit different the the only things i've seen are and we're starting to see it more it's like obviously you don't need grit <laughs> um and, and we're gonna of, get like, into that well yeah <laughs> you don't need grit and plotting defensemen to to play well uh you know in a hockey video game and actually it's the opposite a majority of the guys i've seen you know they have all five of the players that can carry the puck up the ice get it up there you know they bring it back and regroup mm-hmm. and stuff which is only something you really only see in the overtimes in three on three um they do that at five on five uh you know it's quick passing uh it's, you know it's a lot more deking uh, and so, you know, the the closest manifestations you'll see of it, McDavid is one, but I think the guys I think are most representative of that are Matt Barzal and, and uh, Kiro Kaprizov, who are guys who just hold on to the puck. Like, mm-hmm. it, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see in the video game setting, like a guy will just hold on to a puck with one player for, you know, 20 or 30 seconds. Yeah. And, and hockey that, uh, and, and the NHL that never happens, where one guy just sort of holds on to the puck in the James Harden style. And just skates around, skates around, and then passes it when someone comes open. That's not normally how it happens. Uh, and so there's a lot more, uh, you know, egalitarianism <laughs> in terms of the hockey uh, style offense. Uh, but that's not how they do it. Yeah, I'm actually curious to see if people will go more towards that. Like, hey, this one person is going to bring in the puck and do most of the work. You all just get into the right spots and just get it back to that one person over and over again in that very James Harden model. So. So, yeah, so I, I, I can see that playing out. I mean, the other thing is, like, banning slap shots. Like, just don't do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, go for, the, you know, the, the backdoor passes, uh, plays behind the net, uh, which has been something that, you know, people like Ryan Simpson have av- advocated for. So there's a lot of stuff to it. But to me, the biggest things are 
having more skill and then maximizing that skill by like just giving those people the puck as much as possible. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it that way because I think you know every year the draft comes around and you know half the league fan base decides that they're going to care about prospects very very much for you know <laughs> six weeks and one of the things you know you see in like clips and stuff is you see a lot of the high-end guys doing exactly what you're talking about which is they just hold on to the puck and they just circle the offensive zone over and over waiting and then you know maybe there's a little bit of a give and go here right. But usually it's it's it, it really is that James Harden thing where they get it to a spot, pass it to somebody, and then that person has, you know, essentially a tap in. Correct. And it's interesting to hear you say it that way because I really was trying to think about it today. I was like, what does that look like? What does 2K ball look like in hockey? Because, you know, I think the one thing the advantage that basketball has is that it, it is very easy to see and explain why a dunk and a three-pointer are good. In hockey, you know, I, I think we could all say like, oh, yeah, shots from the slot, slap shots, you know, because that's kind of the other thing that I think about a lot is like one timers are right. such a big part, a big part of hockey video games um, that it's it's almost a joke. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's just I think it's really interesting that it's really just that that hyper puck possession style where you just have one guy do it and everybody else just kind of try to move around and in that mold is that kind of one of the reasons you're a fan of the the four forwards 1d yeah i mean i think it's just basically um and we're starting to see this permeate across the board in other sports as well where you know football sort of secretly had it you know the full ball the fullback is basically a non-existent position you know at this point yeah, you know, you know, you don't have the eye formation, and you know, three right. running backs. Uh, you don't have, you do have blocking tight ends and stuff, and that that has come in vogue. But you know, you've gotten rid of, um, you've gotten rid of like less skilled players, mm-hmm. um, and, which has evolved interestingly enough, where it has gotten to the point where it's like, okay, well, guys who might have subsisted off of not having skill, like I have no idea what Dennis Rodman was doing his entire career. Like I don't I don't know how you play in the league eighteen twenty years and don't develop a jump shot like that is just something that would suffice <laughs> today and so like I don't know what he was doing during like what would, uh, what his practice with Dennis Rodman consist of like he wasn't like doing post ups he wasn't doing jump shots like I have no idea what he was doing so that's just like the skill development is just much more refined than it was you know twenty years ago so mm-hmm. you so the guys who were the big uglies are as they used to be called. Uh, are not that anymore. Even a guy like you know Colin Myers and you know uh, you know Rasmus Ristolainen, you know Zdeno Chara, like the really really big guys. You know they have probably much more. They have the skill that was probably you know in the top ten percent of the league uh, in the nineteen eighties. Um, right. But but you know they also have the size to go with it. So it's it's interesting to see how that plays out. But yeah, I think like <laughs> just. The the reason why I'm a big advocate for four forwards and one defenseman is because forwards are sort of held to a more objective standard. It's it's still not great, but they're held to a more objective standard of like we you are only going to play if you are better than you know the other you know ten guys on the roster. Mm-hmm. Versus defenseman is you know well we just needed a body. Uh, 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 Reese Jessup, uh, former you know scout for the Florida Panthers, said last night, "Hey, it like." create a scouting report about a player that doesn't reference their size or handedness. Like, okay, you know, 90% of the time, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, they're traded for Matthias Ekholm, you know, right shot D, 
uh, you know, six four plays right. on Minnesota night. Like that tells me nothing about their effectiveness, about how they would add to the team, how they fit in with the other players. That's just a list of characteristics. You might as well say like blonde hair, you know, like long walks on the beach, all that stuff like that. It has nothing to do with whether or not they'll help me win a hockey game. And so I, I think that's where the four forwards comes into play. Uh, I think people would think I don't believe that defensemen have any value. I'm like, no, good defense. Dougie Hamilton is my favorite player. Like, good defensemen have value. The problem right. is most of the defensemen aren't good, and we treat them like they are, and that's where they create issues. That's interesting because, like, I, I I've said this before. Uh, listeners will know that I this is just one of those things for me. Like, I joke that I have Brian Burke brain. Like, I really am. I I you know like Rob Niedermeyer and guys like that who you know who have in the global talent pool elite skill, but within the context of the NHL are really you know seventh and eighth men kind of basketball right. equivalent and stuff like that like those are the kind of guys that like i love like right now like with the ducks like josh manson's one of my favorite players right. because he's a shutdown guy he does that kind of you know quote unquote old school stuff um you know like i want like the moment i fell in love with him as a player was when he beat the shit out of mark giordano which right. just tickled me to death um so I, it's one of those things where I, I try to check my my biases and things like that. You know, I know for a long time there's been issues with guys' size, and now we're seeing, you know, guys like <clears throat> Braden Point be successful. And I think it's interesting to, you know, you look at Johnny Gaudreau or you look at Braden Point, and you're looking at even going back Martin St. Louis, and you're looking at elite skill players right. who are able to succeed at that size. But I think – guys like Nathan Gerb or Gerbe or however you say his yeah. last name Gerber. is is really interesting to me because he's a third liner and I think he's four and a half feet tall. Right. And so the idea that he has found a place for himself in the league, I think, given how how heavy GMs uh you know, lean into size and grit or toughness and all these kinds of things that that can be a little nebulous or overly overly simplistic, I think is really interesting. Um, let's see. I mean, I, go sorry. Yeah, sorry. I mean, just quickly to that point. I mean, even for me, like I, you know, I grew up playing basketball. Uh, you know, basically my whole life. Uh, and you know, with that comes a sort of you know ability to understand and see things that just come naturally. You know, I can watch. I can watch a five-minute game, not have any idea who the players are, and just watch for five minutes and be able to pick up, like, okay, I have a pretty good idea who's good. Um, mm-hmm. And an interesting sort of, like, Twitter challenge that comes up often is, if you didn't have points or goals, or whatever, um, you, and you're watching, like, the KHL or something like that, you had no idea who the, who the teams were, um, and you, you didn't have points or goals, how would you know who the best player on the ice is? Right. And I think, you know, for me, at least, objectively, it's very difficult to do for hockey, because you know, there's so much going on, and so much what is done is a sort of processing. Uh, even going back to the video games, to me, like, you know, when I play the NHL video game series, it's a it's a process. You know, I'm trying to get the puck in deep. Okay, great. You know, I'm just trying to get the puck into my own own zone. I'm trying to generate a good shot on that. You know, trying not to you know, shoot a uh, slap shot. Uh, you know, no hope for slap shot from the blue line. I'm trying to prevent the other team from getting it in. And just repeat that process endlessly, and then hopefully do that. I will create more goals than the other team. Right. Versus 2K, you know, as I said, I want to have, uh, you know, I want to block all the shots at the rim, 
and then I want to shoot as many threes as possible. But within that, okay, what lineups do I put out? You know, let me call a timeout. Let me switch out this player for this player. Uh, you know, oh, this player's getting tired. Uh, should I play him another five minutes or should I bring somebody else out so I have him, like, left over for the game? And so to me, it's less about execution and more about the strategy plus the execution. And and I think it's the same thing with a hockey game where it's like me seeing a Sidney Crosby. Obviously, yes, he has. I, I think Sidney Crosby has been underrated uh, with the emergence of Conor McDavid because Sidney Crosby has never necessarily, you know, captured the imagination, even like an Ovechkin did. Right. Or even like a, a, a Conor McDavid obviously has. But the things he does are just 5% better than everybody else every single second that he's on the ice. And so that accumulates to, you look at all of his underlying stats, he's just so much better than everybody else, you know, at the end of the season. But it's hard to recognize, you know, on a game-by-game or highlight-by-highlight basis. And I think that is one of the issues that people have, which is understanding what's going on in, in the game of hockey. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think... Um... You know, one of the things I've noticed is I've tried to go back a little bit and look at older players and do all sorts of dumb roster games and stuff like that. Right. Is you get to a certain point and you start to see um, ice time doesn't exist. And right. I think traditionally that is as close as a way as we can get without seeing the games, getting an idea of who the better players were back then. But that's... That's that's inherently flawed because you have to factor in the fact that the coach has his own preferences. And anybody who's watched a hockey game or watched anything, uh, any sport, they, they you will see coaches make bad decisions. You know it's going to happen. And you're going to be like, okay, don't do this. And then they're like, yeah, I'm going to bring this guy in. And you're like, right, but he's not good. But he has your uh, trust and things like that. And so I, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. Like one of the things that I kind of, I'd be curious to know what you think about this. Like, as I get frustrated with is when people say like Joe Thornton should win the selfie because he keeps the puck in the other end, the entire game. And I think that's ridiculous to me because selfie is for playing defense and philosophically, tactically, I can appreciate the best way to prevent goals is to have the puck in the other end as much as possible. And I think that, again, philosophically, I think that makes sense. But I think when you say what makes someone a good defender, defense is the act of stopping. And if you have the puck, you're not stopping anything. And so right. I I think the the way in which we're trying to kind of understand all the different factors that go on in a single game and that lead to decisions and stuff like that is, is it's really um, in its earliest stages right now, I guess is a good way to say it as far as information that we have that we can put into statistical models and things like that. But yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to the selfie, you know, I sort of, I don't, I try not to think too much about uh, the selfie, but to your point, there is, Hockey's unique in that, you know, in football, most players don't play offensive defense unless you're Deion Sanders. Mm-hmm. Now, in baseball, you know, uh, 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 baseball, basketball, there's a set amount of possessions that you're given, a set amount of defense that you're going to play in a, in a given game, no matter what. Uh, and so, therefore, it's easier to sort of recognize that. Uh, but 
when it when it when it comes to Selkie, you know, oftentimes it is like the best best guy who's putting up over seventy points. Like the best right. of a guy putting up seventy points. But going back to the early point that you were making, like I think the reason why you sort of see that of sort of like the guys who have some clear and inherent weaknesses sort of get away hockey and coaches be able to get away with making decisions like that is that if you're in the NBA game and you you know coaches love this rugged guy who you know six six seven and is diving all over basically if you had Dennis Rodman playing in today in today's NBA uh, and coaches just love him and they play him or or an inferior version of Dennis Rodman the, the difference is teams and coaches coaches and players in particular are so ruthless that that guy would not get guarded whatsoever. So they're going to leave that guy. Yeah, that's a good and, point. And, and, and so there was a big debate, for example, Draymond Green, talking about defense. Draymond Green called himself the best defender in history, and then Tony Allen, who played for the Memphis Grizzlies, who's another great defender, you know, said, oh, I didn't, you know, back and forth around who's really the greatest defender of all time. And, uh, you know, Draymond Green basically said, as great of a defender that you were, we actually used your lack of ability to shoot against you and play four on five against your team, and that's how we beat you. And he oh. called him out. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I sorry. I'm agreeing with you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so basically, you're saying like, even as good as you are at one end of the of the court, we use that your inability to affect the other side of the court against you. It single handedly used you to affect your team. And the same thing on defense. If you're bad on defense in the NBA, LeBron James will find you, mm-hmm. and and will put you in a pick and roll, and will get you to guard him, even if you don't want to even if this team doesn't call for it, until the coach takes you out the game. And there's not a ruthless sort of attitude in the NHL where it's like, I'm going to take advantage of this tactical mistake of a coach, and therefore a coach can say, I'm going to put out this fourth liner on the first line to inject some grit and energy. And then, you know, if the fourth line, if the fourth line score is great, well, that was a great tactical decision. And if not, the coach doesn't face any repercussions for that. Right. So, Coaches can make these bad decisions on a regular recurring basis because there's no really consequences that are easy to see. You'll see them over the long term of the season, but mm-hmm. you sort of held back because of that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, and the point you made earlier about slap shots, I, I, I almost wonder if the Tony Allen version of that is just not pressing the point. But, you know, I it, it's just interesting to me because I think there is something to be said for don't guard slap shots from the point. But- but then it becomes about, you know, trying to make sure you're clearing lanes so the goalie can see because you don't want to get a tip and things like that. And so I just think it's a really interesting because, like, yeah, like uh, Tony Allen is, you know, he was an incredible on-ball defender, help defender, all that stuff. But, uh, you know, he couldn't throw a rock in the ocean. And I think – it's almost trying to do an NBA thing, but it's just interesting because I think – Tony Allen shows how good you have to be at defense to make the fact that offensively you are limited justifiable. And, like, I think of right. someone like Patrick Laine, you know, or, uh, like, comparing, like, so for Ducks fans, like, one of the things that we talk about all the time is, like, Daniel Sprong, who was, like, we got him from Pittsburgh in the Pedersen trade, and then he went to Washington, he's got, like, five goals this year, and it's very exciting for him. And it was always very frustrating for a lot of fans because – he had a great shot and we were expecting him or we were expecting him to hopefully develop into an offensive player, but he wasn't doing enough in the rest of the game to like get a coach to trust him. And I think 
it's interesting that there's like a tipping point where it's like if you don't want to do anything else you need to be able to hit 40 goals if you can hit 40 goals they'll let the fact that you don't do anything else slide but that tipping point doesn't exist and i think you know like the roster construction one of the things that's really interesting is gms and coaches seem to naturally come back to the idea of going with guys that they can trust right. and i i wonder if you think that that skews towards the bottom of the lineup because it feels like when they're doing this it's like okay well i'm gonna put my third line out there or my fourth line out sure. there because they're gonna do exactly what i ask them to do as opposed to some level of risk when you do get skilled players out there who are trying to be creative and trying to make things happen yeah i mean that's to me that's exactly it and i understand it like i i admittedly i anytime i'm playing my nhl 21 via gm mode and i will play a game and make some costly turnover by being too aggressive with the puck and it inevitably leads to a goal or i get too aggressive with a stick check and and then i'm on a power play and then i'm down three one uh yeah and, and and the difference is, you know, when I'm playing PK, you know, I can make a mistake and okay, I give up two points, but I can make that over up over the course of the game. Yeah. Versus where a a mistake is amplified, particularly if it leads to a goal. And so, from a just a objective standpoint, or not even an objective standpoint, but just from a you know risk mitigation standpoint, from a coach's perspective, I would much rather have a guy who's I'd much rather death by a thousand cuts than you know, mm-hmm. self-inflicted, you know, gunshot wounds or something like that. Uh, uh, not to get graphic on that, but... Um, Stucks hockey, nothing you're saying is worse than what we've watched this year. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so, from, from a coach's perspective, and, and across all sports, it, it, it's, you know, a repeated notion that coaches have the most impact on the defensive end, uh, where you can establish some structure, mm-hmm. you can establish uh, the ability to sort of put people in positions to succeed. So even an individual defender can be maximized. Uh, someone who's not a good at individual defender can be maximized mm-hmm. in a good structure and system. Uh, the the New York Knicks are a perfect example this year, who have Tom Thibodeau, you know, a good defensive coach, coming in and instilling a defensive structure uh, in a way that Barry Trotz is doing for the Islanders in theory. Uh, mm-hmm. No questions about it. But in theory, that's what's happening there. Um, the problem is, to your exact point, though, is that the offense, the best players are doing things that are outside the structure of the sport and they break the structure. And so this is what we talk about Matt Barzal, Kirill uh, uh, Kaprizov. It's just like, I'm going to do things that are outside of the structure of the sport. Uh, Connor McDavid is going to break your defensive structure uh, and, and no coach can do that. And uh, it's very difficult for coaches to take credit for that. And so when things go bad, they also can't, uh, they're being forced to take blame for something they really don't have the control over. And so in that situation, it's like, well, I'd much rather say, like, you dumped the puck in, you did everything we're supposed to, and if it fails, what's our lack of execution versus our lack of strategy? And so I think mm-hmm. that's where this is risk mitigation. There's only 31 jobs in the NHL. You know, most coaches maybe get hired on you know over under 1.5 times. And so they're just looking at well, what is going to make me look good in the interim? Letting my players run hog wild and maximizing their skill set or slowing down the game so then that way when they win, John Tortorella, I can take all the credit for it. And then when they lose, why well, can't you say that they didn't do what I told them to do? So I think that's ultimately what drives it. But you do get exposed uh, to a certain extent. The problem is I actually don't know 
you know, even unlike basketball, I really don't know where a hockey coach can instill that that positive momentum. I know where they can instill negative momentum in terms of playing time and mm-hmm. you know, a sort of more conservative strategy. But I've argued that hockey is more of a GM driven game where you need to have the right roster construction, the right depth, uh, the right allocation of the cap and, and sort mm-hmm. of the right stars in place. Uh, and then the coach really doesn't matter at that point. All the coach can do is mess it up. And so that is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Like, um, you know, uh, exactly what you're talking about where it seems like the best thing a coach can do is let you play is teach you, help you play defense, give you a system. And then let the offense kind of go wild, and I'm I, I'm pretty sure that's kind of what George Carl's whole thing was, which is if you right. do what I ask you on defense, you can do whatever you want at the other end, right. you know. And guys like Mello and uh, J.R. Smith and Ty Lawson and these kinds of players have had a good deal of success under him, as far as offensively producing, and the teams were uh, competent defensively and things like that. And and it's it's interesting because I think you're, I I think you're dead on when you say that it does feel like the most a coach can do in hockey is hurt the team by making kind of galaxy brain personnel decisions. And, you know, like Dallas Aiken starting Derek Grant to go out there against the McKinnon line. Right. And, and exactly to your point, technically the one of the games they did it, McKinnon didn't score a goal, but you know, shooting percent is 10% and nobody reaches a goal a game. So how 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 much did it work and how much was it just the odds being in your favor and you know i think the other part of this that's that's really interesting to me is is the way in which kind of goaltending plays into this because we have seen bad goalies have a good year and be incredibly successful more times, I think, than we have seen a great goalie have an outsized impact. You know, last year, Hellebuck only got them so far. The year before that, right. Gibson only got them so far. You know, Henrik Lundqvist tried to do it a few times. Like, we have this history of really good goalies failing to lift their team forward. And it it, it makes me wonder if the best thing you can do is just have goalies on the smallest contracts you can find bring guys in for two or three years and then just move them out and start using that cap to increase your goals or things like that. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I'm sure you probably saw I was not a big fan of the Thatcher Demko extension. Mm -hmm. And not because I don't think Thatcher Demko is, uh, you know, and (laughs) if you played uh, NHL 17 or anything like that, when you're just a prospect, you know, he, he turns into, you know, a like a seven-time Vesna winner every simulation <laughs> that he runs. Um, so you know, I've been a big fan of his uh, uh, from the beginning. Uh, as a result of that, but the problem is, to your exact point, um, you know, that's a lot of money to stop from goaltending. And you see, even John Gibson this year, who hasn't played uh, spectacularly well, uh, you know, goaltending is, is very fickle. Um, if you happen to land upon a great goaltender, you know, that's great. But you know, as I said to Canucks fans, I was like, look at Braden Hopi who for three or four years was objectively one of the best goalies in the league. Mm-hmm. And then just the bottom fell out out of nowhere. And even the, the year that they won, he won primarily as Drew Bauer's backup and then came in and took over in the in the playoffs, playoffs and yeah. sort of got them uh, in, in, in the right mix. But even the same thing with Fleury and, um, 
and uh, uh not Tristan Jari, shoot name. Uh, Matt Murray. Matt Murray, yeah. So you know, same thing with Flurry. Flurry, you know, for years had been maligned as the reason why the the Penguins lost uh, so many times in the playoffs, and now Matt Murray comes in and sort of pushes, you know, you know, put, either pushes uh Flurry to a different level of play, or you know, they just had other options to go to other than Flurry and could just go with a high hand. And so in that situation, it's like, okay, we're going to go with that. And to your point, I you know I said it multiple times. Uh, it actually got back and forth with Matt Cain, who's with the with the Devils about this. Where basically, your your when we talk about PDO, your shooting percentage, your save percentage, almost uh, uh, inversely proportional. Like you know, one goes up, the other one goes down, because you can only afford to really pay for one. You you know, you pay for a shooting percentage to go up. Mm-hmm. You know, you pay for your shooters, so on and so forth. That means your defense is likely not going to be as good. Right. Um. And in theory, your goalie, you can't afford a goalie, or you can go all in and. And, you know, pay for defense, pay for a great goalie, but then you're not likely going to have the finishing talent to sort of get there. Um, and it's very difficult to sort of thread that needle. So my argument has been, yeah, the smart teams go all in on, you know, creating the best team that they can uh, from the skaters. And then if you find a great goalie, great. And then if that great goalie happens after that season, well, you can sort of work around it, although the Hurricanes will sort of argue that, that fact. But uh, you just do it long enough, and then once you finally hit on that hot goaltender, well, then you're sort of really good to go. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I mean, there's a reason why Carey Price, Cameron, Lundqvist, uh, I'm trying to remember the last guy who won a Vesna in a Stanley Cup in the same year. It's not happening very often. Oh, no, my goodness. Yeah, no, that's it, – it's funny. I was thinking about it right now, and I, I think most fans could think of, you know, 10 bad goalie contracts before they could think of five good goalie contracts. Right. They might be able, like, you know, you could pick five good goalies, but the goalie and the contract, the the values, the value system is so so different. You know, I I don't care how good Carey Price is, spending ten and a half million dollars on him is a disaster. Like, right. you can just do so much more with that money, you know. And and then it's funny to watch teams kind of have, like, live that out and then shoot themselves in the foot, like the Jordan right. Bennington thing. There was no reason. There, there's no reason they should have committed to Jordan Bennington for another five years. But he's the guy that won him the cup. And so, you know, like, now all of a sudden they're committed to him. And I, I don't know that I want Jordan Bennington for five weeks. Like, so now you have this thing. And it, it's funny, too, because it's like they had the whole Jake Allen and Brian Elliott. And then they brought in uh, Ryan Miller and Martin Brodeur. And, like, they brought all of these guys through trying to find it. And they were bringing all these guys of some level of pedigree. I guess you could quibble a little with with, with uh, Brian Elliott. But then this dude comes up from the AHL, plays well, and as their goaltending improves, some of their stars start to finish. And now we know how that ends. And it ends, you know, Ryan O'Reilly wins the Selkie and they get the, the Stanley Cup and all that. And Jordan Bennington's the hero. But the right. truth of it is, is... He just played adequate goaltending behind a really good team. Right. And so I just think the opportunity cost of goaltending is so interesting because, you know, it's one of the most important positions, but it's also the one that you should arguably invest the least in because it's so fickle. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, when I looked at, this, you know, and actually try to formulate the trade sort of values for goaltenders is like basically impossible because 
if you if you break down the contract and and, and you can ask the evolving you know wild friends about this as well when you break down the contract that Scully's has gotten you know it, the most important variable is like previous starts <laughs> or or gameplay not necessarily the performance of those but just saying enough other coaches have trusted you I'm going to give especially if you're signing a free agent other coaches have trusted you in this position I'm going to give you a bunch of money as a result uh David Interesting. Mark is a perfect example. And so it's not based off of say you know delta say percentage you know above average X Y Z and that's also because of a lack of nuance and goaltending stats. But basically it gets to the point where and, and, and Carter Hart is a interesting test case uh, against my theory that you almost just want to throw as many goals into the fire as possible. You want to start them as early as possible because if they're actually a good goalie, you want to maximize their peak talent level uh, as early as possible because uh, when you look at the Aging curve for goalies it actually starts much earlier than goalies that come into the league. You know, it's around 23-24, um, and that save percentage starts to go like progressively, you know, upward or downward. Um, and so you almost have to like bring them in before you think they're ready and have a sample size to prove it. Um, and then when you're paying for the contract, oftentimes you're paying for like, well, I have five years of proof that this guy's a good goalie. Right. Like, great, that's the five years that he's going to be a good goalie. You're paying for the after effect of that. But the time for him to be a good goalie is no longer exists anymore. Yeah, it's it's almost like the, what is I think it's 500 carries or something like that in the right. NFL. When you see that number for a running back, it's just let him be. Right. Uh, I think DeMarco Murray hit it, and everybody was like, oh, don't <laughs> sign that. And then I think he went to Tennessee or whatever. Um, right. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, uh, you talking about paying for past results. I, I really wonder, like, I, I feel like the first GM to invert essentially the wage scale for hockey what? is going to win 20 cups in a row. Because if you can convince guys to, you know, take these big deal, like, I don't know that it's like a convince, but like, you know what I mean? Like if you can create a system where you're paying your best players during their primes when they're young and then starting to take that cap hit down on the back end as they age out, you can actually build a better team and you can almost kind of work it as far as, you know, you've got these guys on ELCs coming up, which is so cheap that mm -hmm. you can then let some of your older guys start to age out. And then hopefully you kind of create this cycle, but you know, we've seen prospect development is so hit or miss. And, you know, it's hard to know, you know, like you had a thing about how that sending players down to the AHL is just really just confirmation bias. Because either you send him down and he fails and it's like, well, see, that's why we sent him down. He wasn't good. Or he goes down and he plays well and it's, oh, yeah, that's why we sent him down. So he could right. kind of, it, and I'm very much one of those people as far as I, you know, I, I think it's good to let guys kind of, have like not a purgatory but almost like a, a, an opportunity to kind of acclimate before they get to the full game because like the quality of play in the AHL is different than it is in the NHL and you know if you can watch someone step in and do well then they can step in and do well and yet it's hard to know if the end result is inevitable if you remove the middle part, yes, yes and no. So, so a couple of things. So yeah, so going back to your point about the the inverting the cap structure, 
So I would actually argue, despite my vehement arguments the other way, I would argue that that's actually not the case because you still got a team like the Maple Leafs that actually mm-hmm. did do that and they tried to prioritize, or it was prioritized for them that they were going to pay Marner, they were going to pay Matthews, and, and oh, to a lesser extent, Nylander, mm-hmm. for you know, really their prime years um, uh, off, coming off their ELC. Uh, that's that's what they did, and I think Matthews' contract in particular was, you know, still is an outlier in terms of being able to get maximum, basically maximum AAV with a minimum term for for a guy coming off uh, uh, off his RFA. Um, I mean, I think that was great for Matthews, and kudos to his agent and whoever pulled that off. Um, that's very uh, NBA style. I know uh, Austin definitely pays attention to the NBA, um, and so it probably is that where that idea formulated from. But that kind of screwed them over, and not because it was a wrong idea. The problem is not, everyone else wasn't doing that. So everyone else was paying 6 or $7 million for their RFAs, and you're paying $10 million for your RFAs. And even though that is proper market value for them, if no one else is paying, paying proper market value, then you're kind of overpaying. And so, that, uh, so you have to figure out other ways to sort of move the needle. When it comes to the development, I think the interesting part is um, and Scott Powers from Athletic, uh, him and I talk quite a bit, and, and this is something we talk about, where one of the biggest issues in hockey is the outsourcing of development, and outsourcing of skill development to other areas. Oh, we'll leave this guy in the OHL. Oh, we'll leave him, you know, going back to Clinton Byfield. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll leave him in the AHL for a couple of years, uh, you know, a year or two. Let him grow, develop. You know, let's avoid burning a year out the ELC. It's like, okay, but well, what explicitly are they doing there? You know, so... In the NBA, if you send a number two pick down to the G League, which almost never happens, right? What explicitly are they doing there? Well, this guy has a lot of talent, but we want him to work on his jump shot, or we want him to learn how to run a pick and roll. So you'll run every single, you know, it's purely on development. So every single game, you're running that guy through 50 pick and rolls for him to get the pattern recognition to understand. Oh, if I do this, then this defender will come this way, and I throw mm-hmm. a pass out here, and they'll become better with it over time. Or they're working on a jump shot, and they're getting up a thousand shots a day, and eventually you'll start to see their numbers creep up. And I don't know explicitly what that is for the NHL. I don't know what like LA is doing for Quentin Byfield and saying you're doing this 150 times every single day. Mm-hmm. So by the time you actually make it to the big roster, you are that much better with the skill than you would have been had you come in here from day one. I don't know what that is, and I don't think there's a a structured formulate plan with clear milestones of success and failure to say you're on the right track or you're not for every every prospect in the NHL pipeline. And so because of that, I'm like, they're just get, they're just handing out the responsibility and just hoping that it works out and then just send me up the guys that you are, you know for a fact are very good. I'm like, that's fine, but you're also missing a lot of guys on the wayside that could have been developed in the right system that, that you're just not investing the time and energy into. Like, Trevor G. Griff, like, yeah, we know he's good, but what are you doing with, you know, Sam Steele and Max Jones or, you know, all, all the other guys in the mm-hmm. pipeline to make them the best version of themselves um, other than they just showed up ready to go at your doorstep. Yeah. It, it's it, – so let me ask you this. Do you think that the solution to that, as it were, is to have a heavier hand in dealing with the minor league team? Or is it just kind of maximizing training camp and rookie camp to see the guys that maybe you can bring in and develop them kind of along the way? Because, like, 
one of the things that I think is hard is as much as there are playtime disparities between the fourth line and the first line, there are guys who, you know, everybody does play a fair amount, whereas mm. there aren't really guys like in the NBA where like 13, 14, 15 guys are just DNP just cause. Like they just didn't get right. it. And and so like I wonder how how you kind of make up for that difference. And like one of the things I remember thinking about is like, do you put your young players on the PK? So they can yeah. just get that kind of experience on top yeah. of the fact that they're younger, they have all that energy, they've got something to prove, you know what I mean? And kind of use their actual skill with some of the uh, mental and emotional stuff and maximize that so then you can actually play them more at even strength sure. and you're not running out guys like Nate Thompson or Derek Grant or, <laughs> you know, guys who at 5 on 5 are a net negative, even if, you know, on a penalty kill they're, they're useful players. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't explicitly thought about it in that context, but yes, I, I, I think that is along the right lines mm-hmm. of putting your putting your players, particularly in a non-winning context. Like, you know, if you're the Avalanche, if you're, you know, Tampa Bay, um, you know, you, you're justified in putting talented guys on the third line uh, and having them work their way up the roster because you already have, like, legitimate people in front of them that they shouldn't be displacing. Um, and even the best version of the young player may not be better than the current version of that other player. And so in that situation, they shouldn't be displacing anybody. But to your point, like having them, having young players in those situations sort of forces them to do the things that they are uncomfortable with. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. as I said many times, you know, when you're in the NBA, in NHL, when you're a particularly a forward, you know, Every stop in your career prior to getting to the NHL, you're the best scorer on your team. You're the best right. player. You have the puck all the time. And how do you develop that role and figure out how to do things off, you know, off the puck? And, and you know, there's somebody that's better than you uh, that's going to take a lion's share of that. So how do you like figure out what your identity is outside of that? That's one way of sort of forcing forcing the narrative. I think the other, I think the other part of it to your question about like is a more heavy, heavy-handed approach. I think it's either one of two things. So it's either one where, you know, a better, more comprehensive understanding of what the players are. You know, I got uh, I got a little bit into it with a writer uh, for the Rangers uh, at the beginning of the year when they acquired Anthony Potato. It's like, uh, you Rangers acquired left-handed D, Anthony Potato, you know, from the Winnipeg Jets. He played 59 games last year. I'm like, you have no idea who this player is. And I'm like, and, and to be fair, I don't know who he is either. I've just never watched <laughs> Anthony, uh, Winnipeg Jets games to see Anthony Potato play which is fair, but as a result, you don't know what his strengths and weaknesses are and how you can be best utilized within the game. Even the Patrick Line, you know, uh, PLD trade. Mm-hmm. Okay, oh, hey, we traded for a PLD, and we have this so much center death, and now Winnipeg is going to be, a, you know, a dark first Stanley Cup contender. It's like, uh, okay. And, and then there was this perception that PLD was a great defensive player. I'm like, have you ever watched him play? Have you ever seen his skill, skill set? Have you ever seen how he impacts the game? It's actually more on the offensive end than mm-hmm. the defensive end. So you're expecting a significant defensive upgrade by going from line A to PLD. You're going to be sadly mistaken. Um, and so as a result of that, same thing with even line A. You know what? What is it about his game that you know maximizes him in certain situations, not with others? Who, who are the best players that play with him? There's a lot more nuance that goes to that. It says like I'm just going to get a 40 goal scorer. 
and that is automatically going to translate to another 40 goals for my team uh, that right. was on somebody else's team. That's not how that works. He also was playing with great playmakers and great passers who do not exist on the Columbus Blue Jackets. And so as a result, you're not going to get the same impact and output unless you find either another contact for his game or find the players that complement the best version of what he is right now. And so it's either doing that or you can do the other thing, which is like, we don't know anything about development or drafting. We're really bad at it. We're just going to invest as many resources as possible to get as many players in the system, mm-hmm. gonna buy a bunch of ECHL teams, we're going to spend a whole bunch of money on scouts, and Europe, which is, you know, as much as I crap on the Blackhawks, that's what they've done in Europe. They've literally just, like, invested everything into getting the guys underground in Europe, and every year they're bringing over a Dominic Kubelik, you know, uh, Artemi Panarin, mm-hmm. contributor out of Europe just manifests out of nowhere. Uh, and I give them credit for that. Nothing else, but I just literally, <laughs> I, I can say that is a positive for them. I take it you're not uh, you're not very high on uh, Team USA's chances now, with uh, uh, Bowman being in charge. Uh, it, it's hard for him to screw up because he can't <laughs> sign the players' extensions well after their prime. He may he may <laughs> over uh, over index on older players who can't contribute, um, um, but he, he he won't be uh, uh, done in by cap issues. Yeah, I'm excited to see David Backus make the team over uh, Jack yes. Hughes. Yes, exactly. Um, that's funny. I, yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the things that is kind of hard to appreciate is the way in which players interact and the way in which those players, like, all, all just on the ice. Like, I'm not even trying to get right. to the off-ice stuff, but, like, the way that players, like, fit together, like, puzzle pieces and stuff and, like, I think, you know, sometimes we have these very, and this is something I think that you've talked about a lot that I think is really interesting, is we have these hyper-rigid ideas of what a first line is and a top six and a middle six and a bottom, you know, a fourth line and top pair D and bottom pair D. And to your point earlier, it's like, well, the Ducks are just going to put out Jacob Larson and uh, uh, Ben Hutton as the bottom pair just because they can. Like, those are the two guys that they have, and they're out there, and it's fine enough for now. Instead of, like, trying to, like, balance it out and make four... Like, I I wonder if two A lines and two C lines is better than four B lines. And I don't know what teams have tried it, so there's no way to go back and see, like, which teams have had success other than... You know, you look at Tampa and the, how stacked that roster is, and, and then some of those guys aren't. You know, I don't think Yanni Gord or Cedric Paquette, they're like top six guys elsewhere, but they have a relative skill level to the role that they're being asked that is above. And so they're able to find success in the system and in the context of that team. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, so a good example is Colorado. Um, and uh, gone back and forth with multiple people on this. Um, what makes Colorado like this year so good? Um, and especially the past couple of years. And you know, one of the things I give them credit for, at least you know, by my data, is that like they don't have any, you know, on the on their back end, for example, they don't have any slow skaters. So let's you know strip out their skill set X, Y, and Z, and just only focus on skating. Just the pure fact that they have six above average skaters on every single, you know, defensive pairing allows them to do a lot more as an overall team 
because that is never going to be a weakness for them. They're always going to be able to get the puck out of their own zone, no matter who's on the ice. Mm-hmm. And so that helps unlock the forwards. And I think one of the underrated parts, you know, this like going back to Jack Eichel versus like uh, uh, Austin Matthews, even Connor McDavid at the beginning of their career was like, oh yeah, you know, there was a back and forth debate that, you know, Eichel was potentially in the same stratosphere as uh, Connor McDavid. And, you know, how would you ever think that? And one of the things I argued was that because the Sabres defenders were so bad at that point in time that, uh, you know, uh, Buffalo was only getting 43% of the shot share. But if you look at of those shots that they were actually able to get on the net, when Jack Eichel was involved with them, they did really well. Right. Uh, but because they never get to shoot, because they never get the puck, you can't really see that. So the underlying numbers are always suppressed. And so, you know, it's the same thing in basketball with, like, you know, they are definitely player types that work. For example, you have, you know, a Chris Paul type point guard um, and a Tyson Chandler or a guy that can, you know, score off of alley-oops all the time. Well, Chris Paul is an amazing passer. They can get the ball to them. But the difference between Chris Paul and Alonzo Ball or something like that is that Chris Paul, even if that team is like, okay, well, we're going to stand everybody near the realm and prevent an easy dunk. Chris Paul can make enough jump shots on his own mm-hmm. where that's not a viable strategy. You have to also go out and guard him. And so now you're sort of left at, at you know, a decision-making process. Do I guard the jump shot or do I guard the, the dunk at the rim? And between both of those, like, those combinations are normally the best in the league on offense. Um, what does that look like in the NHL? I still don't think people have a full understanding of that. I have some speculation and ideas. But when it comes to roster construction, the thought process should be, if I can find that particular perfect combination for less than the sum of the two parts, then that is where I can invest that money and resources elsewhere on my roster. And then that's when I start to create a competitive advantage that nobody else has. But yeah, I think the thing that's interesting, right, is is Chris Paul is able to to make um, DeAndre Jordan this seemingly elite finisher and all of these things. And, and that's true because, you know, He's six foot ten and he's long and he's springy and so he's able to physically do certain things. But the thing is, is he's getting all these perfect passes. Right. And and I wonder, you know, if the closest to that in hockey is kind of the ongoing joke that the best players to play with Sidney Crosby are nobodies. Like Correct. they bring in Phil Kessel and they're like, finally we got a sniper. And he's like, yeah, but what if I just played with Brian Rust the whole time? Right. And you're like, okay. And so I, like, I wonder if. If to your point, like that's kind of where those margins are that people or organizations need to start trying to exploit is finding those players that have a skill set that fit with their stars instead of, you know, try. I I don't it's weird because you don't want to say not to bring in high end talent, but in a hard cap league, you have to weigh the opportunity cost and you have to figure out how to maximize some of those opportunities. And so I don't know if it's just, you know, nobody who's not a star doesn't get longer than a three-year contract. Although I would argue, and this is probably the biggest deviation I have with the general, even analytics community, is that, I mean, nobody, nobody that's not a star, that's not... (laughs) That is, that is not coming off the RFA to get longer than three year contract. Um, because even with the stars, so our Timmy Spinner has been sort of a sore point for me in terms of roster construction. So, like, our Timmy Spinner is a great, amazing player, no doubt. He makes zero sense on where the Rangers are as a roster. Yeah. Yep. Years of our Timmy playing at a heart level candidate, at a heart candidate level player, 
and they have nothing to show for it. They, um, in in terms of actual like on ice and shot, they've been in sixth place the past few years in their division, and so the hope would be well once these young guys, uh, Lafreniere's and uh, the you know Adam Fox to me is already an amazing player, but to me he's also going to be who he's going to be. I don't really see him going much higher than one of the best defensemen in the league. That's already a lofty perch. You know, uh, Shisterskin is already one of the best young goalies in the league. I don't mm-hmm. know how you get much better than that. And you still are sort of struggling as a team overall. And so, you know, the argument I've made against that was, like, you don't sign that contract for a seven-year contract. So if you believe in that, you sign it for a four-year contract, pay more AAV or something like that. But coaches and GMs in particular are so risk-averse that it's like, okay, well, we got this great player. We have our own player that's locked up for long term. Uh, you know, take us into our 30s, and he'll he'll be the one that defeats the urgent curve, and like never happens. So yeah, in that instance, how do you? And so you know, it may sound contradictory. I said, don't pay your young players a whole bunch of money like Austin Matthews. Don't pay your old players a whole bunch of money like you know Artemi Panarin. Where do you pay your players? And I think it comes into the fact that if you can find that sort of perfect mix, either like we're gonna go all in on players under the age of certain age, and obviously you need some uh, presence in the locker room keep people from, you know, just throwing wild frat parties every day. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, you sort of do the veterans and expendables route. Like, you know, Ryan Getzloff, for example, I think his contract is up next year. Mm-hmm. And is he an $8 million a year player? Absolutely not. Um, but if you can get him for $1.5 or $2 million, you know, there might be something there. And so how do you sort of balance that out of young players who are sort of hitting their prime plus older guys who are a little bit past, you know, long in the tooth but still have something to contribute in the right role? If you can sort of do that and sort of hit that happy medium, while also making sure that everyone is uh, at a value contract, you know, Carolina's going to be an interesting example of this. Like, I think they have no bad contracts on the roster, probably except Brady Shea. Um, but Dougie Hamilton's going to be an interesting example. Dougie Hamilton's my favorite player in the world, probably of all time. But I don't want to sign him to an eight-year contract at not me dollars a year or whatever, because he's not going to be that right. player. He might not even be that player anymore right now. And so that's where you sort of run into those issues of just trying to figure out, like, Yes, we're paying for stars, but to what extent? Are you paying for the name brand on the back? Are you paying for what they're going to be on the ice? Yeah, it was interesting. I think it was I think it was Reese the other day. I think the, the two of you were kind of, I don't know, Twitter's weird and it doesn't really make sense as far as having conversations, but I think I saw him talking about kind of the way you want your waves to line up as far as your waves of talent. And I think one of the things that, that's so interesting to me is, is it really is trying to perfectly thread a needle because you you like you said you need to have some of those guys who are a little bit older to supplement the younger guys who are coming into it but if those younger guys aren't base level good enough to lift that whole group up then you're going to get into a point where you have kind of what the ducks have had the last three years which is a bunch of young guys who maybe could be good down the line and then uh, a bunch of good middle six players like Henrique and Silverberg and Raquel, and you know, and now those guys are basically useless. Like they're all on right. thirty, they're all on terrible contracts, and it would have made so much more sense for Anaheim to get them out, bring in picks, bring in young players, and give themselves that opportunity to build that second wave. But I, you know, as a GM, I can understand, even if I disagree, the fear that I don't want these guys to be ready and there not be anybody there to help them. And so I think trying to navigate, you know, the, the the window of your core is 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 difficult. 
I don't think that's an excuse um, because I think a lot of teams do a lot of things to shoot themselves in the foot. But I, I think, you know, like to your point, it is almost better to just bring these kids in as quickly as possible, figure out what they are and figure out how they fit in long term rather than pushing those con- that conversation off for three years. And now you've got a guy who you're bringing in, counting on him to be a contributor, and then you find out he's just not. Right, yeah, and, and quickly, you know, last point I'll make uh, on that is this, you know, you can look at two other sports, and uh, in in, in not basketball, but uh, baseball and football, and sort of how they construct their teams in terms of ways to look at that, which is one, in baseball, you see oftentimes, um, and uh, 538 had a great article about it a few years ago, I think it's called the Doyle Rule, which is basically trading current wins for future wins. It's like, I'm going to trade, uh, you know, uh, Fernando Tartis, at the time, who was a White Sox prospect uh, for James Shields, who was supposed to get them into the playoff race. And it was a bad trade, obviously, for the White Sox at the time. Uh, it was even worse in hindsight. But right. the thought process at least makes sense, where it's like, okay, we are a team, we are a maximized equipment. Now, you know, basically what I tell people to do is, like, in hockey, if you look at war, if you have less than a 20 more team at a current point in time, you're not ready to, to contend. Uh, if you're above that 20 worth threshold, then yeah, go all in and, and try to get current players because basically all you're doing is maximizing your chances of winning the championship in that time period. Um, so if you're above 20 worth, yeah, go in and start to trade current assets and future ones. And then the other way around, you know, if you're, you know, the Rangers, like I said, being a perfect example, it's hard for them to do because they have so many no, no trade contracts and uh, uh, no trade clauses and all of that. But if you were able to, I would trade a Kreider, I would trade a Zabanajad mm-hmm. uh, and all that stuff like that because to me, it is more important to get two or three potential contributors that may be as good or, as good or at the very least just cheaper than Zabanajad than keeping Zabanajad around and trying to build around his contract that's probably not going to be a value later on. So sort of moving on off of those guys who are pricey and expensive and are about to get there or even for a, you know, for Anaheim, Troy Terry, you know, Sam Steele, Max Jones, moving off of those guys before the rest of the market knows that, you know, they're not going to be the superstars there and hopefully try to use that as an asset to get another superstar. So you can trade a, if you trade anybody for a first round pick that's not going to be a starter in the team, then I would absolutely advocate for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second piece is, uh, from the football perspective, you know, one of the biggest advantages in football is the rookie contract for your starting quarterback. If you're having a $30 million a year quarterback like Patrick Mahomes on a $5 million a year contract, well then go all in to build a team around them. Mm-hmm. They may not be fully at their prime ready to go, but they're going to be at such a value to their actual, uh, their actual you know, dollars that are outlaid for them that you can go all in on supporting them with other players and then using that to to potentially make a run before that next contract hits. Yeah, it's it's this is a a mildly well not mildly but this is a rather fraught thing that I guess but the Texans are kind of a perfect example of that because yeah. by the time they realized the team around Watson wasn't good enough, now they're paying him you know thirty million dollars a year or whatever, right. and it's like okay, well the advantages that you had of knowing that he's this good are all gone. Because right. you've just burned twenty million dollars right off the top, because you didn't figure out where you were at sooner, or right. you had already hosed yourself with some of these older contracts that put you in a position to where you couldn't maximize his rookie contract. 
But um, so the, the last thing I want to say, I just want to ask you real quick, is I saw that you had said something about basically teams should be willing to trade four first-round picks for Jack Eichel. And I think one of the things that you mentioned is the fact that uh, those picks, if you get Eichel, are going to be late. Late picks have a very low success rate, and so you're actually getting the maximum return by um, you're you're getting a maximum return on those picks by getting one superstar heart level candidate. Do you think? Do you think that? the real kind of unexplored advantage left in hockey is going all in on trades. I mean, I, I guess you could say offer sheets, sure. but I wonder if it's more just trades because then you can kind of negotiate it. Like, do you think trading for young stars and paying through the nose to get them is really the thing that GMs need to be looking at as far as doing to try to build up going forward? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think it, it, it all depends on the nature of the team. So, for example, the Blackhawks, for example, like them trading for Jack Eichel. The, the example I used a couple of years ago, I don't know if it's still on Twitter, was saying, you know, if the Arizona, the 2015 Arizona Coyotes traded for 2015 Sidney Crosby, like that would be a horrible, <laughs> a horrible trade for the Arizona Coyotes. And people were like, were like apoplectic. Like, what do you mean? Sidney Crosby is <laughs> the best player. I'm like, it does not matter. Like, Sidney Crosby, you know, as I said, 20, 20 war is the threshold to, like, be a contender. So Sidney Crosby moved them from three wars to 13 war. Uh, and they still wouldn't be anywhere close to being a contender or maybe right. not even a playoff team because it does not matter. Like, it, you need to have a sufficient base level threshold of talent to make it work. Same thing. So going back to the NBA context, the Nets trading every potential draft pick that they could for James Harden matters significantly more than my Chicago Bulls doing it because James Harden, it may be the difference between them winning one or two more titles in the next five years versus mm -hmm. those draft picks are likely not going to be that difference maker. Um, and the Bulls are probably trading assets that may equal up to or may exceed the value of James Harden for a return that is likely a second-round playoff exit. And so, therefore, it doesn't make as much sense. And so, when it comes to offer sheets, the way that the offer sheet is structured, even at the top end, we've given up four first-round picks because they're treating first-round picks as as a sort of fixed value, where it's like you're just giving up four, four first-round picks. Those first-round picks don't mean as much to the Boston Bruins as they do mean to, uh, you know, it seems like the Kings right now or mm -hmm. the Sabres. And so, therefore you should be willing to move off those picks and say, hey, our window to win is right now. We have the cash base to do it. These assets are likely to turn into the Trent Frazier's of the world. That's not as important to us as getting an asset that puts us over that from twenty from a 20 war to 25 war, mm -hmm. which is basically like a 1 in 4 chance of winning the cup. Um, yeah. And that's basically all you're asking for. So I think it really depends on the context of it. But yes, for teams that are in that position, you should be offer sheeting every year. You should be and even more importantly is even if you don't offer sheet explicitly, which I don't think is necessarily the best use of those four. Like you can, if you're willing to trade four first round picks, I wouldn't use it on Jack Eichel. I would, you know, split those two first round picks in half. You know, get an Elias Lindholm and then get a, uh, you know, I don't know, a uh, Radic Fosca or something like that, or uh, Dennis Guriana from uh, the Dallas Stars. Right. Like you, you can find 
more value from the four first round picks. Um, or you can even go to the team that you're trying to offer sheet and just say, like, hey, I would give you um, these four first round picks for Jack Eichel, and I'm going to give him this ludicrous contract. Um, what we can also do is I can, uh, so you either have to accept it and you run into the Shea Weber situation in Nashville, mm-hmm. or I can give you, you know, three first round picks or two first round picks and this player from my roster and sort of set you back uh, in, in a far less painful fashion. Um, that you can rebuild, you actually get a player back, and that actually helps us out because we don't blow up our cap sheet trying to overpay for this guy, and we still have some future upside to go with our draft picks. Like, there's some arrangements there, but yes, teams should be much more aggressive in just saying, like, this is our direction we're picking it. Unfortunately, a lot of NHL GMs get away with, well, we'll just see how it plays out and then get to the trade deadline, and if they're on a four-game winning streak or a five-game losing streak, you know, that that determines the yeah. franchise. And I'm like, how do you get away with that? Like, why is this not planned out from you should have a contingency plan at the beginning of the season saying if we're five games out of the playoff spot by the end, by February 1st, we should be trading all of our expiring contracts. Right. If we're, you know, if we're if have home rights advantage, you know, by this point, we should be trading, you know, willing to, be, to trade these two prospects for that. And that should already be discussed because then that way you can have first mover advantage. Mm-hmm. But teams are playing the waiting game because they don't want to make a quote unquote bad move and opportunity cost is not a is a, is a bad word in, in the NHL, so you can get away with not doing that. Right. Um, well, I I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you spending the time. Um, I enjoyed the hell out of this conversation. I hope uh, the listeners really do. Um, is there anything you want to plug or anywhere you want to tell people to go or anything like that? Uh, in theory. I should have something to plug, but uh, I'm not <laughs> not the time to 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 work on it like I should have the past couple months. Uh, so yeah, so I'll probably have some uh, trade deadline thoughts uh, on my on my Twitter account. Um, but my thoughts are that the trade deadline will probably be as less as it is most years, um, for for the reason that we uh, outlined. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, people can follow me at uh, Yellow Pinato or look for DJ Bodega Cat um, on Twitter, and, uh, and yeah, that's basically it. Oh, thank you again, Chris. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.